Welcome to the Real Talk Education Podcast, where we dive into the real topics facing real teachers, leaders, and students with your host, Marlena Gross, DEI champion, national ed thought leader, and founder of Gladiators. Each week, we will discuss the topics that might be keeping you up at night as an educator or parent. This is not an echo chamber podcast. We will unapologetically examine the real challenges in education, plus provide insights and tips to help you navigate all the things, including curriculum, leadership, DEI, student engagement, advocacy, misinformation, and more. Pop in your earbuds or crank up your speaker because it's time to have some real talk about today's topic. Hi friends, this is Marlena, your host for Real Talk Education. This week we honor a great man, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And on his holiday, we reflect on how we can live out his legacy, how we can live out his dream, if you will. You know, it's not unusual that on MLK Day, people will post their favorite MLK quote, that there will be rallies and celebrations and even marches in his honor. And even white allies will join in on some of those celebrations and marches and speeches. Well, one thing that really sticks out to me is that The quotes that are often posted on social media are referenced in speeches and marches come from Dr. King's most famous speech, I Have a Dream. And today is often filled with remembrance if you're listening to this podcast on the actual holiday. But to be quite honest, in too many spaces and places, MLK Day ends up being just more talk. So it's time to have some real talk about the misuse of Dr. King's quotes, particularly in the last several years, as it pertains to moving the needle to anti-racist schools and communities. And we will also learn in today's episode by examining Dr. King's legacy, how he unapologetically embraced action to create equity Moving from more talk to real talk. So in this episode, you will learn how Dr. King's quotes are used to undermine his legacy by many, the difference between more talk and real talk, as well as tips to equip you with actions that will help you move from awareness to action on MLK Day and beyond. So let's get started. It's no secret that our country has become more polarized in the last several years, which makes today or this week, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, but it makes MLK Day an awesome opportunity to reflect and recommit to taking action to create a community of true belonging. As we remember and celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King, let us not forget the true nature of his struggle for civil rights. You see, Dr. King was a passionate advocate for justice, and not just in words. He actively engaged in civil disobedience and daring to challenge the status quo. He faced government persecution, including bombings, physical assault, 
and arrest on 30 separate occasions in the pursuit of equality. In recent years, his words have been misused to silence critics of white supremacy, obscuring the reality of his powerful activism. As we reflect on his legacy, let us not misrepresent his actions and beliefs as he inspired a nation to create a world of inclusion, justice, and equality. So let's talk about his I Have a Dream speech. This particular quote that I will share with you in just a moment is often one of the most quoted MLK quotes that happens on MLK Day and in any reference to Dr. King. The quote goes, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This is a fantastic quote, make no doubt. And it's from one of the most revered speeches in the 20th century. But this speech actually consists of more than just these two to three sentences. Dr. King's quote, this one in particular, is often misused to support the idea that being colorblind is a positive trait. That that's harmful and dismissive when we do that and when we hear that and we don't speak out against that. Particularly for people of color who experience discrimination and prejudice based on their skin color, it's important to recognize that the experiences of people of color are the result of systemic racism and that our society is still far from being post-race, regardless of us electing as a country our very first black president and President Obama. Refusing to acknowledge race or racial disparities is not only misguided, but it undermines the struggles of Dr. King's dream and marginalized communities. So let's talk about and break down his I Have a Speech dream. Dr. King delivered this famous speech during the March on Washington, which most of us might, re- might recall if we were taught that in school or if you're a person of color, your family talked about that. But that official march on Washington was actually called the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It was held on August 28th, 1963, where more than a quarter million people participated gathering near the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. As a result of that march, Dr. King, along with other prominent leaders in the civil rights movement, lobbied Congress and held meetings with U.S. administration, including President John F. Kennedy and eventually Lyndon Johnson, which resulted in the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the provisions in both of those act, acts reflects the demands of the March on Washington, where he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Dr. King's work as a speaker and activist was expansive and wide-reaching, and it led to 
the passage of those important laws. However, those moments are important, but they're not the whole story. They're not the end of his efforts, but rather one step in a long legacy of calls to action that he advocated for during his lifetime. It's important to not reduce Dr. King's legacy to a few select non-threatening lines that majority culture, white Americans, like to remember and only teach in a one-dimensional way in our schools. And that was prior to the election of President Trump. In many places, Dr. King's words, even the two to three lines from his I Have a Dream speech, are not allowed to be taught in our schools. And that has to change. We need to recognize the full scope of his work and the ongoing struggle for racial equality that he dedicated his life to and More importantly, we can honor his legacy by continuing to fight for social justice in our own lives and in the lives of our kids. In fact, Dr. King actually described a fierce urgency of now during his famous I Have a Dream speech, where he reminded a divided nation that we need one another and that we are stronger when we march forward together. As a diverse nation, it is crucial that we acknowledge and address the existence of white supremacy and institutional racism in our communities and our schools. His phrase, the fierce urgency of now, is not only a call to action, but also a call to acknowledge the truth about these issues. You see, without truth, There can be no justice. We must move beyond mere words and actively work to dismantle these systems of oppression that continue to cause immense harm to communities of color and hinder the growth and progress of our nation as a whole. We must be intentional and dedicated in our efforts to combat white supremacy and institutional racism, plain and simple. To engage in Dr. King's call to action of the fierce urgency of now, it is critical we take opportunities given to all on his holiday, MLK Day, to actually stop having more talk and empty commitments of racial equality, but instead engage in real talk that actually disrupts racism in our country. So recently, I had the opportunity to read Anti-Racism for Reals, Real Talk with Real Strategies in Real Time for Real Change by Sheila M. Beckford and E. Michelle Letter. And you can find the link to this book as well as other uh, resources from today's episode in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Well, this book was written by United Methodist pastors and, well, let me correct that, one United Methodist pastor and one AME Methodist Episcopal pastor. Well, I love this work so much and I love this book so much because the premise of their book from Reverend Beckford and Reverend Letter is that to move beyond more talk, which they 
articulate promotes harm because it's, it's usually only talk. And instead, they inspire us to engage in real talk, which interrupts harm by encouraging anti-racist action. This book is powerful and starts right out the gate in the introduction with truth and a call to action. So I don't want to give the full book away. I definitely encourage you to check out the link in the show notes and grab a copy today. But if you would, allow me to share just a few snippets that had me hooked in the introduction and very first chapter. So in the introduction, the pastors lay out not only why they feel that real talk is needed and real action and and the book is literally just filled with action steps that each of us can take to help our nation and our communities come together. But they are unapologetic about how more talk promotes harm, how real talk interrupts harm, and how racial positionality impacts both of those things, more talk versus real talk. In the introduction, they talk about how real talk requires action action steps um, and how real talk and with those real action steps actually holds white people in particular accountable for their racism as the majority culture and as the founder of so many of the things we are struggling with right now. More talk, they feel, shows intellectual wokeness, but no reparative actions. And more talk actually promotes harm. It's actually a distraction uh, to avoid real talk. And it's a very effective one. One of the snippets that I would like to read to you directly from the book goes as follows. One way white people misinterpret, misuse, and misappropriate anti-racism strategies created by BIPOC people is by co-opting dialogues. Whether dialogues are in the form of book studies, workshops, trainings, small group conversations, or relationship building over food. Those of us who are white consistently use these opportunities for more talk rather than real talk about racism and anti-racism. And we do this in numerous ways, including but not limited to the following. Number one, we take up all the space in conversations. White folks will fill the space of anti-racism talk with our experiences, our feelings, and our strategies, because oftentimes we're too uncomfortable to deal with our own culpability are too inadequate to do something meaningful. And so we compensate by filling the space with our words. The white supremacist notion that white people's ideas and feelings should fill any and all spaces, even those dedicated to anti-racism, actually perpetuates racism and is actually more talk. The second way is we create talk about racism or anti-racism 
without action. Workshop hoarding makes those of us who are white feel better, but does nothing to change our methods or behavior. Or quoting facts about racism or anti-racism strategies without enacting them in tangible, meaningful, and powerful ways. Again, it results in more talk. And finally, number three, we develop our own anti-racism task force or strategies. When those of us who are white create our own anti-racism strategies without taking guidance from BIPOC, we only create more talk. When white people believe we are the only ones to create anti-racism strategies, we perpetuate the racism that teaches us that white people always have the answer. More subtle excuses for this racism sound like, I want to use my position of power to create change, or I wanted to do the proper research for a sound course of action. Now, this particular piece that I just quoted from the book, Anti-Racism for Reals, was written by Reverend Letter, who is white. And again, remember, Reverend Beckford is black, and they both co-wrote this uh, book. It is so powerful because both of these ladies have been steeped in the work of anti-racism for quite some time, and they talk very openly and very real about real talk versus more talk and the dangers of both, right? And they talk about in this particular passage that I read, which really just resonated with me, how whenever real talk is actually happening, the uncomfortableness, or as Robin D'Angelo would say, the fragility that white people normally have causes them to react in a way that they take up the space or they use their positional authority to actually distract from real talk and move back to more talk. And I think my favorite line out of this introduction, I mean, they literally have me on page eight in the introduction, is uh, Dr. Uh, Reverend Letter's example of what subtle excuses for racism actually sound like, such as, I want to use my position of power to create change. That's problematic, to say the least. Because oftentimes, as uh, Reverend Beckford goes on to say, placing the burden of responsibility on the person who calls out racism, which is usually a person of color in a predominantly white situation, it actually is unfair when rather we should be placing the burden of accountability on the person who perpetuated the racism. I literally can go on for days about this book, so I just want to say again, Pick up Anti-Racism for Reals by Reverend Beckford and Reverend Letter, and you will not, you absolutely will not be disappointed. Now, you might be asking yourself how this particular book that I took some time to read just a very small excerpt out of connects to MLK Day. Well, let me close the loop for you. In Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, third paragraph actually, Dr. King warns of the dangers associated with the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. 
Let's think about that for a moment. The tranquilizing drug of gradualism. He actually says in his speech, there is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. You see, Dr. King believed that the slow and patient approach to fighting against the injustices faced by millions of not only black Americans, but in particular black Americans, but he was an absolute advocate of the poor and underrepresented. It created a false sense of progress. Now, what I actually relate that to is when President Obama was elected, I was extremely happy. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Uh, There are actually two things I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. A black president and the Saints winning the Super Bowl. And both have happened. Well, what I feel that it also did was create a false sense of progress because the country did elect a black president. Dr. King feared that by only making small changes to address injustices, people would be led to believe that significant progress was being made, when in actuality, very little was being accomplished. He argued that just that this gradualist approach was not only misguided, but it was risky in the long term. And again, I think back to the election of uh, President Obama, while that was wonderful and definitely a sign of progress. The flip side of that is that it also angered a majority, um, if not an overwhelmingly majority of white Americans that were not ready to have a black man lead the country. And I think that's what Dr. King was addressing years, over 50 years prior to President Obama being elected. But it's, it's something to note. You see, Dr. King made many speeches and actually one of my favorite, uh, personal favorites that of his speeches expands on his concept of the fierce urgency of now, where he, which he introduced in his I Have a Dream speech, if you recall earlier in this episode. Well, he expands upon the fierce urgency of now on April 4th, 1967, at a meeting of clergymen at Riverside Church in New York City, where Dr. King spoke on the war in Vietnam with fiery passion. This speech actually occurred one year before his assassination, and Dr. King delivered these words at that meeting. He says, We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. In those few sentences, Dr. King gives each of us, BIPOC and white allies, our marching orders. He is telling us to not delay in changing our society, which is a lesson we continue to struggle and fully embrace even today. So what action can each of us take to finally right these societal wrongs, particularly as it pertains to black Americans and other marginalized communities? Well, I'm going to share with you five actions that you can take to move from more talk to real talk on MLK Day and beyond. The first of the five actions you can take is to educate yourself. Learn about the history. 
and the current state of systemic racism and its impact on communities of color. Take the time to understand the ways in which racism operates in our society and how it affects different groups of people. You know, Trevor Noah in his final broadcast from Comedy Central, from his show on Comedy Central, he actually gives some very good advice that I think is particularly true when it comes to educating yourself. He advocates for if anyone wants to know the real state of things and get a true perspective on how we are as a country, talk to a black woman. And that is an episode all by itself coming up. But I will be sure to include a link in the show notes to his last uh, broadcast and his farewell speech where he talks in depth about that. Number two, the second way you can move from more talk to real talk is to amplify voices of marginalized communities. In other words, listen to and believe the voices of people of color, particularly those who have been directly affected by systemic racism. Support their leadership and amplify their messages in your community. And I would just encourage you, if you would rewind this podcast back to the very small excerpt of the Anti-Racism for Reals uh, book that I was reading from, be sure, especially if you're a white ally, not to center yourself, not to think that your way is the correct way to address systemic racism, because Quite honestly, you're not the one that is experiencing it. So it's really, really important that you amplify voices uh, of marginalized communities and you listen to them and believe them. One of the, and I might have shared this before, I'm pretty sure I have on, a, on prior podcast episodes, but one of the worst things that a white person can do to a black person, I'm only speaking in, in my identity as a black person, but one of the worst things that a white person can do is not believe a black person when they tell them what they're experiencing. It's called racial gaslighting. And telling them what they should or should not feel when there is a situation that happens. Amplify the voices of your marginalized communities. And that goes from not only the students that you might have in your classrooms, if you're an educator, but also your colleagues. Uh, there's a reason why there's not a lot of, in particular, black educators anymore in education and why there is a, a, a definite gap in black uh, leaders in education, particularly at the highest level of our K-12 systems and even our, our, our college systems. The third action you can take to move from more talk to real talk is to actually support anti-racist organizations. Find and support organizations working towards racial justice and equity, whether that is training that you're bringing in or even donating or volunteering your time or advocating for uh, that particular anti-racist organization. Find ways to support anti-racist organizations. And if you are a leader and if you consider yourself a white ally, please, as you think about anti-racist work, Please consider the messenger. Please consider the messenger and make sure that you are listening to those that are of color 
in your organization, and this is whether you're in a school or in corporate, but listen to those that are in your organization that are of color and let them be part of, if not the architects of, what needs to happen. No, you don't want to put the burden on people of color necessarily to teach you as a white ally all the things that you don't know. But what you can do is make sure that you've heard from your uh, underrepresented groups, particularly your uh, black and brown uh, employees or even colleagues, depending on what your situation is, what they feel visible measures of progress looks like and even let them help you vet who you might be bringing in to talk to them or to teach the organization. The fourth thing you can do, the fourth action, is to address racist behavior and language. Speak out against racist behavior, plain and simple, whether it's in your community, your workplace, especially if you're a school educator or a school support personnel, and even more importantly, in your personal life. And this includes calling out microaggressions and implicit biases and having a humble heart if a person of color calls you out for engaging in microaggressions or implicit biases, especially towards them. This is the area where most white people, when they realize or are called out concerning a microaggression or an implicit bias, that they would rather that happen alone or on the side, even though the aggression happened very publicly. Again, this is the difference between more talk, which is to the side, and real talk in the moment. That's how you disrupt and interrupt harm. And finally, the last action that we have for you to take to move from more talk to real talk is in policy. Advocate for policy change. Whether that means writing to your elected representatives or advocating for policies that address systemic racism in your school or organization, but make sure that you not only advocate for change, but that you include measures to hold those responsible and leadership accountable for their actions. Support policies and initiatives that promote equity and justice for BIPOC and other marginalized communities. Overwhelmingly, those that are in the seats of decision are not BIPOC or people of color or people in marginalized communities. I referenced that before in a previous a previous episode of the quota, like it actually works at 30%. But it is incredibly important, incredibly important that you advocate for policy change, particularly if you are not identifying as a person of color, a part of a marginalized community. Don't center your whiteness. Advocate and make sure it actually happens. Uh, The policy changes needed that promote equity and justice. So just in closing, it's important to remember that addressing systemic racism, equity, all the things, it's a continuous process. And just like Dr. King didn't see the end of his work, neither should we. It's important to keep learning and growing and taking action towards creating a more just society, 
just like Dr. King did. And even when we see elements of progress, we actually cannot stop until all are seen, heard, and valued in our society. So what were your takeaways from this episode? Take a screenshot of this episode as you're listening to it and tag us on social media at Gladiators with your next steps. What, which of the five, I should say, which of the five actions will you take to help move from more talk to real talk? Also, be sure to subscribe to the Real Talk Education Podcast so you never miss a new episode. Until next time. 